This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Real Vision Pro Crypto. I'm joined today by Sergey Nazarov, co-founder of Chainlink. Sergey, welcome back to the show. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you here. I always enjoy these conversations uh, because you're not afraid to go deep in the technology. And I know our Real Vision Pro viewers love to get a sense of what's going on under the hood. Sergey, it's been a while since we've done this. I know we've covered a lot of this material before, but big picture for folks who are relatively new to the picture, talk a little bit about Chainlink and the role that you see Oracle's playing in the digital asset space. Sure, sounds good. So Oracle's are an infrastructure that create consensus about various things that blockchains do not create consensus about. So blockchains create reliable transactions through consensus, through the ability to agree across a number of different systems what that transaction is and to memorialize it across those systems. Blockchains create consensus on three things, private key signatures, token ledgers, and state machines called smart contracts. So that's the, those are the only things that blockchains create consensus and therefore cryptographic guarantees about. Everything else outside of blockchains, whether it's data, trust-minimized computation, cross-chain communication, connectivity with any existing systems, basically all data, all computation, all connectivity, both between blockchains and between blockchains and existing systems, if you want that to be as secure and reliable as a blockchain, you need a system to do that. And the, the, the main system to do that, really the only system to do that, is Oracle Networks. And decentralized Oracle Networks is what Chainlink pioneered, which is basically an environment in which you can aggregate data that you feed into DeFi. You can do various computations that you can't do on a blockchain, but still need to be decentralized and trust minimized. You can connect multiple blockchains to each other. You can connect existing bank systems to blockchains so they can use thousands of blockchains through one interface. All of these interactions need to be made as reliable as the blockchain itself because they fundamentally control what's going on on-chain. And so if you leave the thing that's controlling the on-chain state it, to insecure, easy to manipulate, easy for adversaries to access, then you break the security model and you break the guarantees of those on-chain things. And so that's why Chainlink so far has processed approximately $9 trillion in transaction value through these decentralized Oracle networks because there are all these other things, whether that's data or computation or cross-chain connectivity, that on-chain contracts, on-chain things need in order to become more advanced. The, the parallel for, for the web world is that before you had the ability to connect applications to other systems, applications were very limited. So something like Uber couldn't exist until you were able to connect it to geolocation data about the user and the driver, or a text messaging system, or a payment system. You couldn't build Uber until you could connect it to all those other systems. 
That's what Oracle networks do. They make all of these other systems available to blockchains and they do some of the computations themselves and they create connectivity among chains for these more advanced applications like real world asset tokens, more advanced DeFi, actually all DeFi, um, insurance, trade finance applications, um, all of these more advanced applications require Oracle networks because they, they need that data, that additional computation and or that additional connectivity to other chains or to existing systems. Well, Sergey, well, I'm, I'm glad I asked. I asked. That's your that's simplest your and most elegant explanation so far, so far about what about oracles what do. do. You know, in the simplest, you know, the simplest sense, sense, what I hear you saying is saying essentially, essentially this is about, this is about taking, taking security that exists on-chain and finding a mechanism for connecting it off-chain. I think most people know, for example, the Bitcoin network has never been hacked, uh, but this is about finding ways of connecting off-chain data in a way that is cryptographically secured by the properties of mathematics and physics uh, to things that are off-chain. And I think that it really is the, the core sort of cornerstone of what you're talking about with Oracle Networks. And, and also across chains. So, so basically anything going into or out of a blockchain, which is a lot more things than people think, and anything that happens between a chain, between multiple chains to create what we call the internet of contracts, to create this kind of globally collected, uh, connected internet of multiple chains so that applications can exist across multiple chains, not just in one chain. It's both the connectivity in and out, which includes all data, all payments, all systems interactions, and the connectivity between chains. So anything that ever touches a blockchain, whether it's another chain, or whether it's a data source, or whether it's a bank system, or whether it's a payment system, or whether it's a central bank uh, digital currency system, all of those things need to be securely and deterministically connected and basically made to be as secure and as reliable as the chain itself because they're a critical dependency. They're, they're, they, they become dependencies that if those dependencies break, the chain's ability to execute its more advanced functions like DeFi, like RWA, becomes basically impossible. And that's why more advanced functionalities of blockchains only appeared after Oracle networks appeared. That's why DeFi was sub 100 million when Chainlink came into existence and it grew to over 200 billion. And Chainlink powered you know, the vast majority of that and still powers uh, the majority of, of that in different categories of DeFi. And so th that's because you, you really can't make um, certain applications like DeFi without an Oracle network because for example, financial products, which is what much of DeFi is, is basically the conditions of an agreement, the financial conditions, and the data. So even your bank account that gives you a yield is basically the conditions under which you get the yield, and it's the data telling what yield to give. What is the current yield from the federal funds rate or whatever the, the data source is to decide the yield. And so all of that getting replicated on chain needs to happen at the high security standards of the chain so that you have this kind of holistic application, this verifiable application um, that, that, that can act in this way throughout its operation, not just in the on-chain part, but right. in every part, other part of what it does. Yeah, and, and for people who are relatively new to the technology, this has been something of the Achilles heel of blockchains outside of the chain link world. Uh, virtually every major sort of cross-platform bridge attack or hack that we've heard about in the last two years here, we've been covering it on Real Vision Crypto and Real Vision Crypto Pro, has been about these uh, finding out the vulnerabilities that exist in cross-chain bridges, in smart contracts, and other mechanisms where you're actually working off-chain in the major protocols. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of these um, problems are actually the same problem. They're a consensus and security problem about different types of data. So Chainlink began with market data, then it evolved into being the larger provi largest provider of market data and proof of reserve, then providing identity data, then doing computation, and now uh, also to cross-chain. And cross-chain is also a data problem because the movement of a token is basically data. You're moving data about this token goes from here to here. And our system can also add instructions as another type of data to the token so that when it arrives at the destination, it can actually trigger smart contract events without anyone having to integrate into that chain. 
And so the, the, the real challenge here is how to efficiently give smart contracts and verifiable applications, various types of data, various types of off-chain trust minimized computation, various connectivity, maintaining the highest level of security. And we have five levels of security that you know, I hope we can cover um, about the different levels of, of what defines the security of systems like this. And then also making it easy for existing systems to integrate with all of that so that you can accelerate the speed at which capital markets, asset managers, banks, trade finance, all of these existing sources of value can integrate with all of these chains together with all of this data, which is what they actually need to make their more advanced applications. Yeah, and this is what's really fascinating, what you guys are doing with CCIP and other technologies. I know folks' ears have just sort of perked up if you're thinking about RWA, real-world assets here in crypto, not risk-weighted assets. I know my uh, fellow legacy uh, finance people think of it that way, but in the crypto space, obviously, we're talking about connecting real-world assets on-chain, which I think has the potential to really bridge these two worlds between traditional finance uh, and decentralized finance. Sergey, you guys are doing some interesting stuff uh, with some of the infrastructure providers in the space. Uh, I'm talking here about DTCC. Uh, I'm talking here about SWIFT. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing and how it fits into the broader vision that you have for integrating the digital asset space and traditional finance. I, I think RWA is uh, the place where a lot of capital markets activity, banks, asset managers, many of which hold multiple trillions of dollars in value individually. So there are, there are individual firms. Some of the firms that we work with, like ANC Bank in Australia has over a trillion dollars in assets under management. And there are others that have multiple trillions in assets under management. And, and basically that's the whole size of our industry, just in one participant, in one market participant in that part of the world. Right. And th those folks are very good at generating um, various financial products. That's, that's what they've been doing for some of them for over a hundred years. And basically RWAs, are a type of packaged financial product or asset of some kind. The, the main thing about RWAs is real world. And real world basically means connection to the real world, which necessitates data. The real world assets are actually defined by their ability to gain access to data reliably and to prove things about themselves. Like I'll give you an example from the proof of reserves part of what Chainlink does uh, with gold coins. Gold coins necessarily need to prove if they're good, that they have the gold, right? That every unit of gold coin, every single unit on chain represents a corresponding unit of gold off chain. And ideally you don't want to wait for an annual audit. You want that to happen in real time, which is what proof of reserves does. And Chainlink is the largest provider of that, of proof of reserves. So for real world assets, we're already the largest provider for the ones that exist, various gold coins and stable coins. And capital markets, um, banks and asset managers have a lot of experience with real world things, with basically packaging various things into financial products. So there's a very natural, it's a very natural place for them to start. Um, it doesn't mean that they're making an advanced DeFi protocol, uh, that, that's not the stage that that's at necessarily, but I think that, that is the, that's where it will all go, that they will eventually have their own DeFi protocols that they will work on together with the existing Web3 DeFi protocols. But if we just talk about RWA, I think you're right, that's a place where the intersection of this technology with capital markets is already happening and where it will be valuable to both the other capital markets participants and to the Web3 users. Because I think that collateral, the real world assets that are generated by banks and asset managers will be valuable collateral to Web3. So in, in that context, the, the market infrastructures that you mentioned, like SWIFT and DTCC, definitely see significant demand. And all of these um, infrastructures, as well as banks and asset managers and various institutions, they are fundamentally driven by demand. And this is what I've been saying on your show, I think, for years, and what I've been saying in many other places for years, is that the demand of their user base, the demand of their clients, will fundamentally drive them to adopt blockchains as a superior format for value and transactions of certain types. And RWA is indeed a place where that transition is actively happening and moving towards production readiness. And we're in multiple conversations with large banks and asset managers that are in discussions with us about production. So not POC, not pilot, but production. Real value 
transactional usage of the system on a consistent growing basis for significant asset classes. The, the role that the market infrastructures that you mentioned have is to enable banks and asset managers to do those transactions in efficient and legally compliant ways. SWIFT is a very widely used standard for banks and asset managers to define their relationship with each other through a set of messages and actually kind of a definitional standard for what is a bond, what is an equity, what is a cash transaction, what are the properties of that transaction, what are the features that we want in our transaction? And everyone is kind of speaking the same language. Right. It's kind of Swift is kind of like the English of the financial world where most banks and most asset managers speak it. And so the work that we're doing with Swift is finding a way to use that widely accepted standard that's already defined what an equity is, what a commodity is, what a cash transaction is, and repurpose it and use it for blockchain interaction. And the, and, and the benefit there is that the SWIFT system, the SWIFT private key signing infrastructure, the SWIFT infrastructure that's been around for over 50 years now and has successfully processed quadrillions upon quadrillions of dollars can continue to be used by banks for interactions with blockchains. And then the benefit to the blockchain industry is that those 11,000 plus banks that are on the SWIFT system, which is the largest collection of banks on any system, are accelerated in the way that they're able to interact with blockchains, which means that their clients, their assets under management can reach blockchains sooner. Yes, they might reach private blockchains of that specific bank or of other banks that they're used to transacting with before they reach public blockchains. Yes, that will happen. But that is a critical incremental step. And the magnitude of the amount of money that we're talking about, um, you know, SWIFT settles quadrillions of dollars in value. DTCC on an annual basis settles quadrillions of dollars in value. DTCC is basically the settlement infrastructure for the entire US securities industry. DTCC is also about efficiency, but it's, it's, it's largely around making transactions legally compliant so right. that those transactions can be settled and everyone can rely on their legal force. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So the basic difference here is for, you know, and I think this stuff is so critical for people to understand, to understand the existing infrastructure that we have in TradFi today and where we're moving in the digital asset age. So I think of Swift as essentially as a standards body that defines the messaging formats. These are the the technologies that are used to handle the interchange of information between banks globally. DTCC, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation here in the United States, settles something like 90 plus percent of US equities and I think 85 to 90 percent of all securities transactions. We're talking, uh, again, quadrillions of dollars, 10 to the 15. I mean, it's just an almost inconceivable magnitude, particularly relative to the size of the digital asset space. And building these infrastructure standards, while it may seem a little bit technical, this is about the fundamental basis of connecting the traditional finance system that we live in today to the blockchain-based decentralized system that many of us in this space believe we're moving towards. So it just, it could not be more important from a fundamental infrastructure perspective. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, I think right now we have these two worlds. So we have the public blockchain world that we're more familiar with and we're longtime users of and believers in, and that has grown past the trillion dollars. It's continuing to go well past the trillion dollars. And I think it'll go to multiple trillions just off of a user base like you and me and other random people and hedge funds and whoever, right? And that'll happen. But realistically, there's an entire other world with hundreds of trillions of dollars, which has traditionally managed value, has traditionally managed equities, commodities, funds, all these other vehicles where value is held and transacted in. And that part of the world 
does have a huge benefit from blockchains. They just have to move slower because they have so many requirements. They have security requirements because when you manage trillions of dollars, you have security requirements. They have legal requirements because when you manage trillions of dollars for over 100 years, there's legal frameworks you have to abide by or else you get shut down. And so the amount of boxes that they need to check really um, is quite large. And the force that leads them to check those boxes is the client demand. The client demand has been very high and it only continues to grow. And now I'm seeing multiple capital markets folks have dedicated digital asset teams. So the thing that I saw before, because I've been working with banks and asset managers and SWIFT for well over six, seven years now. And the people I was speaking with before were in the innovation group. And the innovation group is a kind of general launch pad for a number of ideas where ideas kind of begin. Now, the conversations we're having with every bank, asset manager, infrastructure, there are people with a digital asset title. So there's a head of digital assets, there's a digital asset tech lead, there's digital asset product managers, there's digital asset managing director. So there are now dedicated teams. Some of these bigger banks, at this point, I think I've surpassed over 100 people across these multiple teams. And these teams are focused on digital asset adoption, digital asset products, digital asset implementation. And that is driven by the client demand that I mentioned uh, a few years ago and even you know previously, I think, when we talked. And then the client demand is that's driving the banks and the asset managers to invest in these digital asset teams to make these digital asset offerings is then something the financial market infrastructures like SWIFT and DTCC and others look at to say, okay, this is a trend that I need to service because the financial markets infrastructures view the banks and the asset managers as their user base. So what, what we're doing is we're working with all of those categories of folks with CCIP, with data, with identity, with all these key building blocks. And we're allowing them to reach the point of doing production transactions. So for example, with RWAs, you can't make an RWA without something like proof of reserves. Then you need to add identity data if you want another bank or asset manager to purchase it because they need to comply with AML KYC and therefore they need identity information attached to the asset. And then you need to settle the assets value daily through NAV or price or some other thing. So that's already three pieces of data just to have one RWA. So we enable them to, to generate that RWA. But then once they generate the RWA, their second problem is liquidity and access to the many different chains from which people could purchase the RWA. That's where CCIP comes in and allows the various other banks, asset managers, CSDs, all the other market participants to connect to that RWA. And because of the efficiencies created by how CCIP is designed, to gain access to that in a way that can keep them on their own systems. So they can stay in their system, they can stay on their own chain, and they can still access your RWA, even purchase it and have it returned to them. And by lowering this integration burden by all the customers that you would want to buy your RWA, we can rapidly increase the size of the market that can access your RWA, which is the fundamental thing that RWA creators want. They want a market that will purchase that asset. And then the third problem that gets that needs to be solved and is, is getting solved with our help is once the RWA moves from the chain where it is created into the chain where it is purchased, you want it to remain updated. You want the real world asset to remain real world. And because the real world asset was created using a set of data standards that is compatible with the system that moved the asset. So namely you use the chain link data standards like proof of reserves to make the RWA asset, the chain link identity standard to comply with AML KYC, the chain link price um, standards to create a daily settlement price for the asset. And then you also moved it over CCIP, which is compatible with all that. You're now able to get an asset that whether it goes to chain B and then it gets resold to chain C and gets resold to chain D, it will remain updated. It will remain what, what is known as a golden record. And so it's not just about making the better assets, it's about making them, connecting them to liquidity, connecting them to all the counterparties that want to gain access to them, and allowing those assets to remain connected to all the data, to all the systems, while they move across many, eventually hundreds of different chains, so that the asset can be resold. 
and, and maintain its real world properties. Gosh, there's, there's so much to talk about here in terms of the functional mechanics, but I wanna talk a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes uh, in these meetings and conversations that you're part of. I think often we hear about this uh, sort of framed as a TradFi versus DeFi conversation. What you're saying is that there are significant teams on the ground at large banks in the standards making bodies, in the clearing corporations that are connecting, running the financial plumbing. Talk a little bit about how you understand the status of those conversations and the framework that the people who are working at the world's largest financial institutes institutions think about this technology and how it's going to change the world uh, that they live in, in terms of the actual mechanics of how these things work. Sure, absolutely. J just to be super clear, my view is that TradFi is DeFi's biggest customer, eventually. That's just, that's just how the world's gonna go, in my opinion. It's, it's kind of an inescapable reality because the only thing stopping it now is lack of legal clarity for how TradFi could use DeFi. But that legal clarity is gradually appearing. And DeFi, because it's in the public chain world and because it, it has a different risk tolerance, will consistently have higher returns. You will consistently be able to get larger yields on the same dollar, on the same set of assets in DeFi because of the propensity to experiment, the ability to take risk and all this stuff. And in the TradFi world, you have a bunch of people that, that have um, a desire for more yield, even if there is more risk. And the, the size of that is, in my opinion, that even on the high spectrum of what people are willing to take on risk for is in the tens of trillions. So this DeFi versus TradFi thing doesn't really make sense because they're all just trying to do transactions. They're actually very similar transactions and all the transactions are motivated by basic economic laws of yield and supply and demand. And as long as the counterparty can be made reliable, which is the point of DeFi, right? The point of DeFi is not to have any kind of biased thing toward you or me or anyone else. It's to make the counterparty cryptographically reliable, cryptographically guaranteed in a way that's better than TradFi counterparties. And if you just ask yourself, why as a TradFi counterparty would I choose a less reliable counterparty? Why would I choose someone less reliable to transact with? Right. They wouldn't. And if you have a more reliable um, counterparty in the form of a DeFi protocol, and if you have the legal compliance clarity to do that transaction, and the yield and returns from that protocol is higher than the other TradFi counterparties you have, then you, you are now the, you are going towards that. So I think it's a kind of misunderstanding, and I think it's, it's a thing where people think that um, the existing financial system is, is, is trying to mess, screw them over. In some cases, that does happen. There are cases where people maliciously use the existing financial system, but the existing financial system is just a big collection of a number of firms trying to make money. And if they can make more money by integrating with DeFi while still complying with the law, that's what they're going to do. So, so that's the DeFi versus TradeFi thing just doesn't make sense to me. It's, it's all going to be one big internet of contracts. And what, what we're doing is we've already created very widely adopted standards in Web3 in the public blockchain world. That's the first stage of, of kind of the plan that we have. The second stage is getting those same standards adopted by the capital markets for data, computation, and cross-chain communications. So that when you're in Web3 and you wanna transact and you need a settlement price, you wanna use the chain link price because it's the most reliable secure price. When you're in the capital markets and you wanna transact, you need the chain link price because it's the most reliable secure price. You want to send some token someone else? Okay, great. Um, you know, you need a shared standard for that. That's the same standard, ideally, in Web th Web three public chains and private chains. And then eventually, if both of these worlds are on the same standard, in stage three of the plan, once the legal barrier between them goes down, they can merge into a single global internet of contracts worth hundreds of trillions. So, so, so that's that's what I think is going to happen there. In, in terms of the banks and asset managers, in terms of stage two of that, what I'm basically seeing is that there is significant demand for tokenized assets, real world assets. That I think will lead to the next stage, 
of demand for yield on those assets, which is also what I've been saying for years. For years. So the banks will now create their own real world assets, and then they will seek to generate yield on those assets for their clients, the banks and the asset managers. So what I'm seeing with these infrastructures, what I'm seeing with um, the banks and the asset managers is that the client demand is there. And that is driving them to invest in more people, in more systems, in, in, in more connectivity to each other, right. in more RWAs, which will initially emerge in a way that works between two banks, but will eventually become the financial products that we all use on the internet of contracts. Eventually what I think will happen is that you and me will be able to access institutional grade financial products. We won't have to be a bank. We won't have to be a multi-hundred million dollar hedge fund because all of those financial products will be on chain. And fundamentally, the banks and the asset managers want to sell more of them. So they will initially sell them to the counterparties that they know and they can transact with in a legally compliant way basically because they cannot do it in a legally compliant way with the other counterparts. Right. But once they've done that enough, and because there is another market, a very large market, I eventually think you and me will, will gain access to tokenized private equity, tokenized carbon credits. We, we will be able to, to buy a token about the insurance cash flows, uh, about a specific shipment of a specific type of good only. And the, the reason we don't have that now is because all of the complexity of that. Right. But, but we are a market for that. And we are actually a market that will pay a premium for that over the banks and the more sophisticated people that buy that in volume. So it'll all merge into one big global internet of contracts, hopefully on the same set of standards provided by Chainlink for data, compute, and, and cross-chain connectivity. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let me just see if I understand this, because these are some really big ideas that we're talking about here. And people know I get excited about this technology, but I think what we're talking about here is something that's truly profound. So what you're saying essentially is solving the counterparty trust issue up front is the issue that you guys are working on right now. In other words, making sure uh, that when there's a claim about a claim on assets, that those can be cryptographically verified in ways that use the laws of mathematics and physics rather than trust. But beyond that, once that problem is solved, you essentially have the infrastructure in place to solve issues of transparency. People remember going back to the 2008 era, some of the challenges uh, that we had with not knowing what counterparties had what, right? This was a huge challenge in the traditional banking system. It created a tremendous amount of fear. You saw things like spiking TED spreads, all of these measures of interbank, uh, um, interbank illiquidity rising very dramatically. If you can solve these counterparty issues, you can solve the transparency issues, and then you have a, essentially a permissionless network uh, whereby end, the end uh, users for this don't necessarily need to be banks. Essentially, what you're saying is you can expand that market to virtually any potential counterparty. Uh, this is a, a just a huge quantum shift in the way uh, that the technology gets done because essentially you're, you're creating all of the trust verifiable pieces that financial intermediaries provide today. It gets built into the network itself. That's right. At the end of the day, we're all going to end up at stage three. And stage three is a single global internet of contracts that's just like the internet of today. The internet of today is about information technology. It's about the transmission of information. Even right now, this is the transmission of information. And when information technology began, there were separate siloed intranets. They were disconnected from each other. You know, information wasn't encrypted, so e-commerce couldn't happen because credit cards couldn't purchase things. There were all these problems all these basic infrastructure problems. And it created this, this, this jointed, disconnected internet thing 
without a lot of valuable applications. But eventually those infrastructures, infrastructure problems became solved. Credit card numbers were encrypted and were used in e-commerce. VoIP became a thing and people could communicate. Um, images, image compression improved and images went on websites and website load times went down and you had social media and all this stuff. What I'm talking about is the internet of value. I'm talking about a single global internet of contracts where just like on the current internet, there are certain systems you can't access and certain systems you can't access unless you go through certain steps. But you're on a global single internet. You, you don't join the Goldman Sachs internet to use the Goldman Sachs thing on the internet, right? You're just on the internet and you can use Goldman Sachs and you can use BlackRock and you can use uh, Fidelity and you can use whoever as long as you meet their requirements. And their goal is to keep those requirements lower and lower so that they can get more users. Right. So what, what I'm saying is we need a, a global standard like TCP IP was for the internet, which is what CCIP is for those connections between the chains to happen. We need a set of data standards so that when you and me want to transact, we can agree on a settlement price. We need a set of computational standards so that when your contract is partly on chain and partly off chain, I can evaluate the security of your contract. And I can know that its security meets my standards without having to read each line of code in your contract and each line of code of the off-chain system. And so these standards appearing are what we've already done in the Web3 world, where the majority of those types of transactions um, are settled with chain link fees. And the majority of high value automation computations happen on chain link automation and, and so on. And now we need to replicate that to this other separate internet of contracts. So th there will be these two separate worlds, which is the, the framing of our discussion, right? There's these two separate worlds, but those parallel separate worlds will eventually converge into one global internet of contracts that you and me will be on, that institutions will be on, that everyone and everything will be on, and it will all need to transact in a verifiable, cryptographically guaranteed way. And that verifiability and cryptographic guarantee will depend on the security of the system providing it. And that's what we're doing. We're generating all of that security, all of those standards beyond what's in a blockchain so that blockchains can achieve this level of connectivity and this level of advanced applications, whether it's about um, equities or commodities or trade finance, or ad networks or gaming or anything, because they all have the same problem. It's the same fundamental technical problem. And that's also why so far our system has processed, uh, has enabled um, the transactions of approximately 9 trillion in value. I think that's a low number based on the amount of value that's gonna be flowing through all of these different tokens, all of these RWAs, all of these different DeFi protocols, trade finance and so on. So I, I still think well, we're in the early to mid stages because now we're seeing stage two, the capital market stage. When we get to the middle of the capital market stage and a bunch of capital markets participants are on one set of standards like Chainlink for data and cross-chain, then we will accelerate towards stage three where transactions between public chains and private chains and bank chains begin to happen. And then if those transactions are economically attractive, if they are attractive from the point of view of profit, for the capital markets, and there is legal clarity as to how to do more of them, then the rate at which that transition to stage three will happen, in my opinion, should be very quick. Be, be, because the economic force, the economic um, demand is there. And, and that's what that's the funny thing about all this. That's the, it's the same force driving both of these markets, but somehow, some people still believe that these markets will be driven in parallel separately forever, experiencing the same exact economic forces and preferences. And like that, that, that just doesn't make any sense to me. What, what makes sense is they will converge into a single global market, um, ideally on a single set of global standards for data, trust-minimized off-chain compute, and cross-chain. And, and that's what CCIP is, and, and, and that's kind of the body of work we're, we're working on. Yeah, and it's fascinating because ultimately what this means is decreased costs, rising system and network availability, and the ability to embed uh, the logic of the systems within the network 
uh, to end users so that you can do all kinds of interesting things uh, in terms of having non-third-party mediated contracts, for example, uh, where you can have the trust built into the network uh, so that when conditions are met, payment gets made or securities gets transferred. Uh, essentially, you have a, a Turing complete monetary system. Yeah, that's that's right. So what you end up getting is the promise, the full promise of smart contracts that RWAs represent and DeFi represents and decentralized trade finance represents and decentralized insurance represents, you arrive at that. And the way that our infrastructure is being built is to take full advantage of that um, and, and on multiple levels. So, so the first key design decision is security. And there are these five levels of cross-chain security where you basically go from a single server at level one multiple servers controlled by one key holder at level two. So that's distributed computing pretending to be decentralized. Level three being multiple independent nodes with multiple independent key holders. Um, Chainlink started out at level three uh, about three, four years ago and quickly went beyond it to level four, where you can make multiple separate networks. And then level five, which is where Chainlink is now for things like CCIP, where you have multiple separate networks generating a single lane or a single bridge. So the, the first key property to generate this programmatic future that you describe where value can be put in is security. People need to know that the systems they're putting value into will be secure and reliable and will continue to allow their value to exist and be safe and be able to be transacted in a reliable way, even if it moves to another chain, even if it's dependent on a piece of data even if it needs to go do a computation that it can't do on chain, even if it needs to interact with an AI, even if an AI needs to do something to it, all of these interactions need to be made safe and reliable. The second key property is actually using the programmatic properties of smart contracts in the right way. So for example, when you combine Chainlink data with Chainlink automation, you can actually trigger contracts with data. So you can use the programmatic automated properties of contracts together with Oracle networks to get more and more advanced programmatic functionality. Similarly with CCIP, what you're able to do is you're able to take an existing standard like Swift. You're able to, within that standard, define, I want to go to blockchain X, I want to go to smart contract Y, and I would like to trigger smart contract function Z, like the buy function. And then you're able to attach those instructions to a token, to a blockchain token. And then that token reaches the chain where the smart contract is and where the real world asset can be purchased. It purchases the token and it sends it back to you without you having to integrate with that chain. Sergey, so, can I just ask you a question? I know we've gone into the weeds a little bit here on the technology, but I don't want to leave people with this view that it's all rainbows and bunny rabbits. There are some real challenges here. And you mentioned uh, one of them, which is the legal regulatory compliance aspect of it. We've got stuff like AML, KYC, OFAC compliance on the one hand, securities laws on the other. I know that you're not a lawyer, but give us a sense of how you see this unfolding because there are material problems that need to be solved before the technological challenges can actually be met and implemented in production. Talk a little bit about how you see that process unfolding at the high level. Sure, it makes sense. You're right, that is one of the hurdles. That's why TradFi has taken so long to enter this market. And if you want to gain a sense of how quickly TradFi will be able to enter this market, one thing you could do is understand the parts of the world where there is more clarity about how to transact using blockchains. And the more clarity that appears, the more that barrier will decrease. But you're right, that barrier exists in different ways. There is an identity level to it where identity requirements are baked into the financial system as a hard requirement. And so Chainlink, for example, has systems like Deco where identity information can be verified, but you get back a zero knowledge proof and you don't have to share the identity data on chain, which is another legal requirement. Let me ask so, you a question because there's also challenges. We talked about the challenges from the legal regulatory uh, compliance infrastructure on the TradFi side, but there's also the, the sort of the, the questions I think 
in the uh, DeFi slash uh, blockchain space. For example, if you go up to the uh, if you go up to the Ethereum homepage and you Command F uh, for the words credible neutrality uh, and uh, and uh, and uncensorability, you see that this is a major thesis here uh, in the blockchain uh, blockchain space where uh, folks are very reticent, hesitant about being included in AML KYC. This is kind of a, a culture clash type of issue. How do, you, how do you see that shaking out? Because I know that there's some skepticism about anything that interfaces with the traditional finance system on the blockchain slash DeFi side. You don't have to do AML KYC if you don't want to, and, and you'll just miss out on a certain class of products that already exists with centralized exchanges in the crypto industry. So if you don't want to use a centralized exchange, you're already going to have this problem. It's a common recurring problem already for our industry. Um, I think there will be protocols, RWAs, various assets that don't require that. I think there will be a market for people that want to interface with that. And as long as it complies with their local laws and their personal goals, then I'm fine with that. I have a very libertarian view on people being able to make choices about what's right for them. If there are parts of the world where that is a requirement, and that part of the world is able to generate high quality real world assets. And then there are counterparties that are willing to comply with that requirement in order to access those real world assets. Then that's another example of choice, right? right. So, so my goal is, is not to say the world has to work this way or it has to work that way. My, my goal is to help create infrastructure with a large and growing community of engineers, researchers, non-technical people, a whole bunch of great people so that there are standards and there is a shared language between chains and there's a shared data standard and there is a way to generate all these applications in a secure, reliable way. And then people can generate those applications on whatever meets their personal goals. So there will be certain applications that you can only access if you're a citizen of a certain country. And that'll just be the choice of the application, but that's not my choice and that's not our choice. That's the choice of that application creator. And then there will be other um, users that don't want to comply with that requirement. They don't want to disclose their identity. They don't want to do various things. And that's their choice. And they will exist in, in, in their own universe of applications. And I believe that all of these applications can exist on the same set of fundamental low-level standards. But the, the real goal, I think, is to create the largest pie possible, to create the largest collection of all types of assets that appeal to all types of preferences from all types of users. And that's what the internet is, right? right. That's, what, that's what we want the internet to be. That's what we say when we say we want the internet to become more decentralized. We don't mean we want only this type of world or only that type of world. We want a world where various groups can make various choices about how they interact with each other using information technology. Yeah. And, and that's the same basic idea for um, crypto infrastructure. And there will be applications that some people will not be able to interact with because of their choice about the standards that they want to meet. And right. that's fine. And to your point, that's exactly what happened in the internet. You essentially have this infrastructure build out happening. You have these protocol stacks being built out. You have layers of availability of services. Uh, you can interact with them in ways uh, that make sense based on the applications that you want to fulfill. Sergey, I, I know we ran long, we always do, uh, but what a great conversation. I always appreciate you coming to join us. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with from this conversation. Um, I think our, our industry will decouple from the larger tech sector um, in a more and more meaningful way because people will understand that it is a um, failure-resistant technology. So there are technologies that are not resistant to economic problems that are luxuries. And then there are technologies that um, help solve economic crises. I think we are moving towards some class of economic crisis in various economies because of you know really, really weird, but perhaps necessary, I can't tell, uh, economic decisions by, by various large um, actors basically. And I think there will be a uh, reckoning for all of that value and all of all of that. And I do believe that blockchain technology will be gradually adopted for its massive benefits. Some of the benefits we discussed here, 
and it'll do well in a, in a market where everyone wants to interact with more assets. But I also believe that if there is a um, economic crisis, that blockchains will be the solution to creating a more transparent, more reliable world that doesn't depend on brands, but it depends on cryptographic proof such that your ownership is not guaranteed through a password to a database, but through an application that controls your private key on your phone. Or your um, reliance on an insurance company will not be based on the reliance that they have the logo above Grand Central. It will not be that they have the biggest building with the best logo. It will be based on cryptographically verifiable mathematical truths that they can never deviate from and that you can verify before you connect your value to their insurance policies. I think that um, this world will occur. I've been talking about it for many years. I'm consistently wrong because I'm, I'm one of these kind of pessimistic people that doesn't understand why the current global financial system keeps chugging along in the current state that it's in. I understand a little bit more now about why it does, and there are actually good reasons for that in certain ways. But I still believe that there will be a global connect correction back to reality and that blockchain technologies, like imagine if there's a bunch of solvency issues, imagine there's a bunch of big issues in the world and, and then people ask themselves, well, how do we avoid these issues? How do I know your solvency, proof of reserves? How do I control my assets, private keys? How do I know that the financial product won't just take my money, DeFi? You know, this is the world that, that I um, do believe we will end up in, it's just hard to tell at what speed and what will be the, the, the order of the, of the market dynamics of the failures of existing systems or the demand for real world assets that will drive this sooner. But I remain convinced that it will happen. Uh, the timeline is not clear to me, but I remain completely convinced that it will happen. Sergey Nazarov, always a pleasure when you join us. Great, great to speak with you again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching, everyone. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality, and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year, and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds.